0: Yeah, so we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 6. And it has some very confusing things that surround it. Because when we go from 6 to 19, we're really talking about lots of judgment. We're talking about seals, and then trumpets, and then bowls. And there's been multiple times that people have tried to explain these. Lots of people think differently about these. And I just, let's all just kind of collectively say from the front end of this, that if you disagree with me about exactly how it's going to happen, or I disagree with you, we're still going to be friends. Okay? Because there's been some hotly debated things, lots of greater scholarship and lots of smarter people than um, I've ever been around that have tried to wade into this. I have a book in my office called The Pocket Guide to the Apocalypse, which has a listing of all the times someone's predicted the end of the world. And it's there's hundreds of them in it from pretty soon after Christ ascended to heaven in the early church days, the early church fathers, up until um, the little-known fact that Billy Graham predicted the end of the world of once, and then he backpedaled from it very quickly. Um, and I've always said, since we're not supposed to know when this happens, that anytime time someone predicts it, you're actually delaying the inevitable. So if everyone would just shut up, then we could actually have the second coming, Jesus could come back, and we're all free from this, but every time someone puts up a billboard, I'm like, ah. Oh. I mean, the scriptures say that He's supposed to come like a thief in the night. So I always have a picture of Jesus with pantyhose on his head, sneaking through the window, coming in. Um, but nobody really, that's not really what we want to have happen, which that's a thats a dumb thing to put on your head to steal anyway because you can see right through it. That's just movie stuff. But if we're not supposed to know when it's going to happen, then there's supposed to be a mystery. It's supposed to be, I'm not sure there's supposed to be a, I don't know. So when people start predicting it, it gets kind of fishy and weird. So the first thing we have to kind of think about is this idea or the concept of the four horsemen is something that's been part of our culture for quite a bit. Just like when you studied English literature in high school, maybe in some college, you weren't real fond of it, it starts popping up in movies and other things as you get older. Same as biblical references. They continue to pop up in references throughout. Um, whether you're talking about literature, you're talking about biblical literature, you're talking like our culture is steeped in continuing to reference these things. And we always try to put some Faces to these ideas, some faces to these concepts, and so this is a pretty just. I mean, this is just stolen from Google, so it's not really a big deal, right? And then we have one that's. Can you kill a light or two for me, Jake. Sorry, I forgot to tell you. Um, we have like this image, which is kind of a modern graphic novelty a little more like terrifying and glowing white horse with a bow and all that. And then I grew up. My first recollection of the four horsemen was in professional wrestling. <laughs> some of you know exactly what I'm talking about um, in the course of professional wrestling I don't remember the guys on the end because those members of the Four Horsemen changed over the years but you can always guarantee to have Ric Flair and Arn Anderson as members of the Four Horsemen right? gentlemen, stick your head. some ladies maybe we all know this right? Um, but think about even that like you had a concept in professional wrestling where the Four Horsemen because they're trying to go for Fear, like, it's it's pretty much all over. I remember probably my second reference was the comic books. These are the X-Men Four Horsemen. Um, probably around the time I was in middle school, this comic book came out. And then a couple years ago, a really bad X-Men movie came out that was kind of threw the Four Horsemen in there as well. And so it, it's a concept that's continued on and on and on in our culture. That you might not have a biblical literacy of these things or know what you're talking about, but it pops up that the concept of the four horsemen is terrifying to people. Now, what's real interesting is that a lot of biblical scholars, I would say most, would would take a stance um, that if you're a premillennialist or a postmillennialist, which we'll get into this in a second, they believe that all we're going to talk about with the four horsemen is happening after the rapture. That the rapture happens first. The only problem is, the rapture is not mentioned in the Bible anywhere. At all. Now what we get, and I made some notes, because the idea of a rapture going up, because Jesus mentions this in Olivet Discourse, we'll get to that in a second, um, in Matthew 24. But we have in 1 Thessalonians 4, the concept saying that, for this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left into the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So saying people who are alive currently, and people who are have passed and already have professed, have professed faith in Christ when they died, they're all going to come together in this moment. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another. Encourage one another these words. Then we see later in 1 Thessalonians 5. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So from 1 Thessalonians, the writing to Paul, and some stuff mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus speaking to the disciples, we get the concept of a rapture. That Jesus isn't going to let me go through the pain of a tribulation, so I'm going to be swept up into the clouds. So you get the idea of the rapture, and you get the those who have already gone before kind of meeting Jesus in the clouds and the, before any of the tribulation happens. That's where the concept comes from. But when you open up Revelation, and you go from 5 to 6 to 7, and 6 to 19 is all of the, the woes and all of the, the pouring out of God's wrath. There's no mention of that. So, we need to talk about it. Okay. There are several ways of thinking about this. Now, I have a copy of this chart for you back there. on the. It's very hard to read. Uh, My eyes are aging, and it's even kind of tough for me to squint and see it. So, if you want one, uh, you can grab one. If you would like the high-resolution image that this is made from, I can send it to you so you can blow it up. But it's a chart looking at the three most common ways, with some sub-fingers, of how the end times are going to happen. So you have premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, with a little bit of preterist and some other stuff in there too. I, I show this to you this way to begin with. People do not agree on how this is going to happen. I bet those of you that have studied this in some very deep and abiding ways over the years, in the course of, the, of your walk with Christ, that we would have lots of disagreement in this room. And I'm just going to tell you where I land um, right now, because it could change in a couple days. Um, there are two of these theories I like a lot. Um, but I don't know that it's because of theology or it's just because of my heart. Um, one is amillennialism. I kind of like it a lot. I've landed there. For, but I, I wonder if that's my rejection of the left-behind theory. I just, and that could, I'm just being honest. The Left Behind series, the books, the movie. I remember watching the movie, and I'm going, what? This is... And so I made it. But also, we'll get into it. We'll we'll just... Let's just start talking, okay? So, premillennialism says that after Christ's death and resurrection, the day of Pentecost, we have the church age. Okay? That's what we're living in today. And what it says in a premillennial idea is that there's going to be a rapture and a tribulation. Now, people disagree about when the rapture will happen. That there's going to be a pre-trib, pre-tribulation. This is when the church is raptured. Then what's left is the enduring of people. Then Christ returns. And then there's a thousand-year reign of peace on earth. And then the final judgment. So what happens is the the seven years of tribulation happen. And then the church is raptured at some point in this time. A pre trib belief is that before the rapture happens, or I'm sorry, before the tribulation happens, before that first seal is broken we're talking about today, is the rapture. The church is swept up and is with Christ. Then there's seven years of tribulation, lots of pain, lots of suffering, and then Jesus returns with the church, Christ's return, and for a thousand years there's a reign of peace on earth, led by Christ as the one leading and the believers helping him, ushering in, essentially running the, the. the planet. After that thousand years, those who have come to Christ or have had the opportunity to then open themselves up to Christ or become believers, then final judgment, destruction of the earth, new heaven, new earth, no more do-overs. Okay? Some people say that halfway through after the fourth seal, no, sorry, I think it's after the fifth seal, there's a break in the tribulation where the saints are going to cry out right before the bowls are poured, and then that's when the church is raptured. Others say the church will go through the entire tribulation and then the church is raptured. So you have one theory, many fingers, and people argue about it all the time. Now, I'm just being honest with you. My preference is that if premillennialism is the way, I want the rapture first. I don't want to suffer. I think if people are honest, a lot of why they land there. Now, my other reason, because of, I think, how I'm wired, is I don't want to see other people suffer either. I think if I was, I knew the answers, knew the hope, knew what was coming, that to see the entire world going through what's happening, a fourth of the world dead in the first four seals, like that really breaks my heart. A thousand-year reign of peace on the earth, that sounds kind of cool. But what I really want is, again, the, the new heaven, new earth. So in the premillennial idea, you've got one idea. The, the focus point is the church age, when does the tribulation happen, and is there a thousand-year reign of peace? Because at the end, we're all going to the, the – they all end in the same spot. But after the reign of peace, there's judgment. Unbelievers spend an eternity of torment in hell, and believers spend an eternal kingdom of heaven, which then becomes a new place, new new earth. Okay, so that's premillennial. And then we hit postmillennial, which says, same stuff, um, the preterist, which I don't want to, that's a whole other subset. We'll just stop. Okay, we'll go here. Christ's death, Pentecost, the church age, the tribulation is right now. We're living in it. And society progressively becomes better. So the goal of the postmillennialist is that we, we bring the kingdom of heaven to bear here on earth now. That we need to work hard to get to... Am I wrong? Okay. Um, to get to a, a place of peace. We work for justice. We work for these things. That this is, the, this is the direction we're going. We're working really hard. The church works towards this. And then once we progressively improve, we're currently in the tribulation, then Jesus returns. Um, and all are judged. Believers go to heaven. Unbelievers have eternal torment. There's no understanding of a rapture in this at all. That we live, we live, we live, we continually increase in making society better, we work hard to make society better, and then it's all over. Okay. Then we get to the amillennial. Which, again, I'm admitting that I tend to land here, but I think it's more about my view of society and less about the rapture. Um, I, I Depending upon the day, I'm either a premillennial millennial pre-tribulation, that's where I land, or I land here. And in the last, this is where I landed for probably seven, eight years. You hear me say, you hear me talk like this. Um, but probably in the last two years, I started leaning more towards the premillennial, pre-trib, rapture, thousand-year reign in peace, because some very wise people have spoken that truth into my life, and so I kind of lean towards that a little more because of the Bible. Um, but, we can still be friends, can't we? Alright. Amillennialism says, same thing, Pentecost, church age, and society progressively decays, that tribulation is a symbolic thing, because we're all in pain and suffering, and then when Christ returns, in an instant, judgment happens, in an instant, the church is claimed, and in an instant, the new heaven, new earth is ushered in that it's all culminating in one, that when Christ returns, church is raptured, judgment happens, there is no way out, there is no chance, there is no thousand-year reign of peace to come to Christ, that does not happen, it's over, done, new heaven, new earth, the earth has exploded, and we all get to live and reign and rule with Christ um, on a new, in a new heaven and a new earth. And you hear me, you probably heard, as I preach, and as I pray, and as I, I you can tell I tend to lean that way. If you don't even care about this stuff. You've heard it. That when you take your last breath on earth, you take your first breath in heaven, when Jesus comes, it's over, it's done, when he returns, like that's... You hear that come out of me a lot. But as I've studied some more, and I, I, I tend to... I'm starting to lean a little more towards this millennial reign. I'm kind of... It wouldn't take much to nudge me more. Um, but ultimately, ultimately... I don't want to say it doesn't matter, because it does matter. It matters greatly. But if I believe that I'm going to be raptured, not be in the painful suffering of half of the tribulation or the whole tribulation, and you believe the church needs to go through some suffering to be pruned, we're on the same team. And if it happens, if my way doesn't happen, like I really want the rapture, because I don't want me, my family, the people I love, the church I love, the people I... I don't want that to happen. But if all of a sudden Jesus returns... When the seal's broken, we start seeing these things happen, we're like, oh my gosh, am I going to go, oh, I'm done with this? No. I'm going to walk through the tribulation. I'm going to suffer through. I'm going to, right? We'll get into this in this way greater detail the witnesses, and it's just going to keep unraveling, not unraveling, unwrapping as we go. But I just want to give you a foundation that there are definite different theories on how to look at how this is all going to culminate at the end. So when we go through this for the next from six to nineteen or the next several months, um, just know that people land in different places. This isn't an issue of bad interpretation. It's that God hasn't given us this clear picture. Remember that the book of Revelation is given to us for us to see that Jesus is king. It's the revealed truth that Jesus is king. And too often we we'll get wrapped up in all kinds of things. Now, if I'm, I mean, think about the world. You better believe that during the Middle Ages, when plagues and were running rampant, there were people in churches listening to priests at the time. The Reformation didn't happen. And they're all saying there's thousands of people dying. This is clear to the end. Right? When earthquakes, famines, think about the 1900s. How many wars we fought between World War I, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, what we were doing in the Middle East. Thousands, of, millions of people dead. The Holocaust um, what Mao did, what Stalin did, like, which, those two are way worse than Hitler. We always give Hitler, like, the big place in, in history. I like you have all these things happening, and you look, I would take two steps back and go, that really seems like a tribulation. But I'm still here. I don't, I don't remember in the 1950s the pictures of all of a sudden, you know, large portions of the planet are gone, of a rapture. So unless we've all been left behind, which I don't I really like that reference, uh, I don't think that's what's happened. So but so what we should see is that it's going of all the pain that we see, it's going to be worse when the seal's broken. Infinitely worse. So that leads us to this little chart, which I didn't give you because it was confuse you all. This is a literary kind of construction of how this works, and there's also ways in which you can read six to nineteen. You can read it as the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls all happening simultaneously. I don't think that's the best way to read it. but Some people read it that way. That when you read the when you read the seals being broken, the trumpets being sounded, and the bowls being poured out, that that's happening at one simultaneous event. I don't think it reads that way, so I, I don't can't land there. There's another that says seven seals, then the seven trumpets, then the seven bowls. That there's a progression that's happening, that they're getting progressively worse, and each one happens another one, another one, another one. I think what makes more sense is that when you look at them, is more like a of, like a cone. So when the the seventh seal is broken, that ushers in the trumpets, and when the seventh trumpet sounds, inside that seven tru- or seven trumpet is the seven bowls. That it's not. It's not one to the end, and it's not all together at once that there's a progression that happens of ever-increasing destruction. So, you ready? All of this to say, it confuses me. But I love it, and I love the dig, and I love the fight, and I love the wanting to know. I love all of it. it. It also, for a guy that really likes things to be black and white when it comes to these things... It presses into me to appreciate and to love the mystery of what God's going to do. That even as he tried to communicate to John to then write down for us that it's so far outside the bounds of our understanding that even putting it to words is hard for us to grasp. That leads me to a great hope for what's coming. It also leads me to go, ooh, this pain's going to be darker than." So we start in Matthew. I think you should read through these next sections, through 6 to 19, holding the Gospel of Matthew really close. That in Matthew chapter 24, it's known as the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus on the Mount of Olives. He's talking to the disciples. He helps us to see how some of this stuff is going to come to to be. So we look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of Of the birth pain. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all the nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So you see where you take in Jesus' words this seems to lead to the church being in the tribulation testifying to the nations and then the end will come. That there's going to be a tribulation. That there's going to be, right? So even in Jesus' words, start spelling, this is where people get it from. They start spelling this out. They start seeing it. But even still then, it's not crystal clear. Um, but I think it gives us some insight. That there's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be a gradual destruction of the earth, and then to a final, full destruction. So when we read Revelation 6-1, it starts with this scene that's kind of odd and eerie and full of fanfare. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. So who's opening the seals? It's Jesus. He opens the seals. Don't ever forget that. That What we're talking about is being put into play by Jesus himself. That he is the one bringing judgment to the earth. And the scene we get should be like a football game or a Colosseum with gladiators. And you have one of the four living creatures. They're hovering around, worshiping continuously, saying, come. It's like... It's like a rallying cry, and so then you have people run through the tunnel and bust through the the banner and they come out or a gladiator runs in, or think about a UFC fight, and you got your fight music on, and you're coming down for your fight. Like that's what we're getting, this picture of. And a couple things are like this there's a there's almost like a celebratory anticipation that a time is here, it's here. It's finally here. There's also a picture of this rider. Like I, I'm not. I've not ridden a lot of horses, but I've ridden some horses. And it's not really a thing where you can say Jesus is talking. It's here. He breaks the seal. The angel says, "Come," and you're like, "Oh, it's time." I've got my horse all ready to go. I got this. We're ready. To, we could gotta throw the saddle on there. Gotta make this happen. If I ride bareback, that's gonna be whole. I gotta get on there. It's not. We don't see that picture. We see. We're given a picture of this stadium, kind of Colosseum, where John and all the the elders of the church and the angels are all surrounding, they're all around, and Jesus breaks the seal, and they say, come! He comes running in on his horse, riding in on his horse. That there's almost been like a holding pattern of wait, of, of, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time? That there's an anticipatory moment of, finally time. Now, when we get to the end in, in verse 8, like, what's coming... Is the destruction of a quarter of the planet. But yet there's... Come, it's time. That's the building up of the cries of the people of God. This world is broken. All the destruction. All the pain. All the... And it's finally going to be over. And so with that kind of rallying cry, a rider on white comes. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, there's been some debate on who this is. Um, There's some people, I think they're completely wrong, say this is Jesus himself. It makes no sense. If Jesus is opening the seal, I mean, it means Jesus. He can go from that moment to jumping on a horse, but that doesn't make any sense. This is, I feel, clearly a picture of the Antichrist. That this is a picture of a mockery of who Jesus is. We talked about last week that one of the things that Satan does is he takes the trappings of what is real, and he twists it, and he creates a false sense of things, and then people flock to it. That this is the warning we see in Matthew 24, that there's going to be false prophets and false teachers to come and sway people from the truth. Some of the reasons I land on that is that we have this white horse, which is reflective of what we'll see Jesus when he returns later at the end of Revelation, where he comes as a king with a sword out of his mouth, the sword of God, the word of God, coming out of his mouth, He comes on a white horse with many crowns. This is a rider with a bow. We don't see any indication of arrows. So it's kind of like an impotent leader with no arrows. And so we have this. He doesn't have the full power, full authority. One crown versus the many crowns that Christ will wear. So it's a false teacher. It's one who's going to come and cause confusion and wreak havoc amongst nations and amongst people by confusing people away from the truth. But as the truth of Christ is spoken, this rider comes in looking like Jesus, looking like has the right answers, looking like a man of peace, but is really here to conquer and to be the conquering one who's going to sway people from the truth. Subtle, subversive, pushing people, (coughs) dragging people from the truth. The second rider is war. We often call war. My Bible. When you opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, "Come." And out came another horse, bright red, its rider, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. start with confusion from the false teacher, and then we lead to total anarchy, a removal of peace, <clears throat> a giant sword to slay, that people are going to kill each other, that it's going to be all out chaos. Now you can see <clears throat> sorry between the confusion of false teachers, think about the church being taken down the path of false teachers, down false doctrines, um, forgetting their first love, we just we studied in the fall with the the seven churches, like all this stuff that's going on. Then you add to it war, a lack of peace. Confusion leads to war, leads to death, destruction. I mean you think about what happened, we'll get into the Jesus mentioned Matthew about earthquakes and stuff. Last week we had attack, missile attack, plane shot down, earthquake in Iran one over the... I mean, if you were paying attention to the news at all, and you, I mean, you're mean, like neck deep in Revelation 6 going, oh, is it? You start seeing, like, the second coming happening everywhere, and then all is like, eh, we'll just get back to complaining about the stock market. We'll be, And it's all just kind of... Is that the continual rumors of war? I remember being <clears throat> a very new Christian in the early 90s, mid-90s, and with war in Iraq and all this stuff and then then it happens I mean, if you believe that Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be confusing the leadership, war people killing each other, when this stuff happens it starts to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up a little bit and then it seems to subside when you get back to complaining about the weather all over again so when it happens we're going to see this build there's going to be no question there'll be no question. Now I do believe that all these are what Jesus talked about—the birth pains. The, like these are the birth pains. How long is that going to last? I don't know. There's days I wish you would just hurry up and start breaking seals and get this thing over with, because there's so much torment, so much. I'm just ready. There's other days I'm like, man, I think we need to hold on a little bit. We need got some work to do. Got some people I love that need to come to faith, so that they're hanging out with me in the rapture, whenever that is, right? So this rider brings war, destruction. This horseman is talked about, um, symbolizes slaughter we see in 2 Kings. This is a complete destruction of people. 5 and 6. Get to me things filled in here. 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. (coughs) And I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius. They do not harm the oil and wine. Now we know that <clears throat> from Lamentations 5 is the idea of the black horse connected with pestilence or famine. Um, and we see that this, this rider comes looking like with a, a scale and a marketplace, like almost like a businessman kind of a thing what we see is that during this, this writer brings with him famine, starvation. Um, the quote of I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four-living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius. Barley, um, we know, is used in making beverages sometimes, but it's also kind of the poor people's wheat. So if you didn't have good wheat for good bread, you'd add some barley. And you do like a one to three ratio to make it make it stretch. Um, I don't know if you ever lived at a time in your life when you had to stretch the food. I grew up. I never knew that the chili didn't have potatoes in it um, until I was an adult and my wife made chili for me once. Uh, my grandmother always made chili, and a pound of hamburger was hamburger wasn't cheap, and so she put lots of potatoes in it. So my chili was always lots of tomatoes that were canned from the garden, lots of potatoes, and then. Some hamburger and some bean. Then when Amber made chili for me, that's her first marriage. She's like trying to cook the foods I like. And from your, you know, that happens in most marriages. And then she made it, she put macaroni in it. I was like, this is really good. She was like, oh, it's like your grandma's. I, like if you had that like first couple months of marriage, like moment. Say it's not the same. What do we do? Do I tell her? Do I not? <laughs> and, like. No, actually, mom used macaroni, but man, this is good, and I like this better. I mean, grandma and my mom use macaroni, this is better. But you have this... The, when you think about the whole world having to stretch its food resources. And tith, uh, a quarter of wheat for denarius, depending on who you talk to from an economic standpoint, that's 10 to 15 times the going rate. So it's talking about inflationary food um, event. That you, If milk costs you a dollar a gallon, which I know it doesn't, looks for this guy who can't do math. If it's a dollar a gallon, it just became 12 to $15 a gallon just to feed your family. And so what we're getting at is this famine isn't just... It's not just some crops. It's not just... This becomes a complete economic breakdown across the planet that everyone is suffering. But there's also a, a, a limit to the suffering that God's going to allow at this moment. And that's why you see the line... Do not harm the oil and the wine, which are staples for cooking, staples for um, healthy drinking, and in areas where water can kill you, you, drink wine, and that's why beer was a big deal coming to America, was that if the water is going to kill you, you had things that fermented to, for the, the process of killing all that stuff. Well, leave the oil and the wine alone. So this is God limiting the famine, limiting the destruction that's going to happen. But that isn't. It's building. This is building as we continue through the trumpets and the bowls. It continues to build. Suffering. The last rider. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, "Come!" And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. So this last one is this pale rider, um, often depicted as kind of green and sickly. You know when someone has the flu or is sick, you're like, you look kind of green, a little green around the gills, right there today. let's well, this is a the picture. Of this rider is carrying. That kind of death has that same kind of. You often see it depicted as a skeleton or almost like a corpse-like picture if people are trying to draw this. And then Hades is following, which is often confusing because we have four horsemen, four riders, and here's Hades running behind. Like poor guy has to be the cross-country runner instead of having the rider the ride the horse. But what we get here is that this is supposed to be death. I think how this works: confusing of nations, confusing false leaders, confusing people of their faith. Then war comes. Because of war, in war, famine happens. People are downtrodden. The poor are becoming even more marginalized. And then in the midst of all of this, death comes. The death comes in the midst of all of this pain and suffering. And Hades is riding along. So this means, this gives us a picture that there's going to be a lot of people dying in this. But there's also a death of the soul to hell, to Hades. That if this tribulation we're living through, if the church lives through this tribulation, the people who die are going to go to heaven. We know that. If the church is outside of this tribulation and is raptured ahead of time, then these are the people who are suffering during this time of tribulation, um, they are going to be taken straight to hell by death. Okay? I don't know why I'm doing this. I just made, I don't know why. But I'm doing, behind me is hell. Get behind me, hell. Satan, all that. Um, But that's what's going on here is that we're seeing this progression of the four horsemen. And I I know I didn't mean, like, it popped up in culture in the Tombstone movie, (laughs) right? The wider character played by Kurt Russell pops this up. And so these are common themes that we see throughout our culture that this is something we're afraid of, something we know, something we understand, but yet it also confuses us to no end. Now what breaks my heart at the end of all this is in verse 8. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. But this gives a picture that when these seals are broken, a fourth of the planet is going to die. Now we haven't seen that in our history of the planet. That a global event that wipes out a fourth of the planet hasn't happened. Confusion, bad leadership Destructive leadership War, famine And a quarter of the planet dead I know we're like 7 billion It's hard math for me So let's say around 2 billion people Are going to be dead Around 2 billion people And they didn't even get By wild beasts of the earth That this total confusion and destruction Is going to lead to I, I don't, This is all kind of just trying to throw things out there does that mean that the wild beasts are going to turn on us? Or does it mean that the wild beasts will be feasting on the corpses of those who are gone? I think we can see it both ways. That the beasts, like it's the earth, the point is that the earth is turning on itself. the whole planet is turning in on itself. That as we as image bearers of God are turning on ourselves and, and devastating the people around us, that the earth itself will begin to come after us as well. That sin has broken this planet and broken our hearts and broken everything that we see in front of us. That it's so broken that it has to be completely wiped out and begun again fresh. That there's no no part of it that can be around in the new heaven and new earth. It can't be there. That even the beast will turn on us. That your house cat your favorite dog. I don't know what it looks like, but everything's going to turn back onto humanity. It's, it's almost like the destruction that humans and their sin have wrought on the planet is going to come back and get you in the end. Because we're going to talk about earthquakes and all this other stuff coming. So how do we end this happy sermon of destruction? Well, if I, there are days, and if, if, I'm just being honest, that I worry about this a lot. I think about it. I think I worried about it a lot before my children profess the faith in Christ. I worry about it a lot. Like, oh, I don't know if he comes now. I just uh, well, do I believe by agent accountability? I just worry about it a lot. If this, is, that, is it happening? Is it but then when they both profess the faith in Christ and baptized, I tend to go, eh, whatever, just tomorrow's fine. It's good. I'm good. Then I worry about the tribulation part. I don't want my family to be in the tribulation. I tend to be a bit, like, protective. I'm not, like, a hardcore prepper, but I've got supplies. Like, I ha- Like, am I, is this going to happen? Do I need to, what am I going to do? Do I need to fight to the end? Do I, I don't know. Can I just be raptured, please, Lord? I don't want, Could- let's just all, all of a sudden, I'm here, and all of a sudden, I'm in heaven with, like, oh, this, yeah, this is awesome. Seven years, we get to run the planet? Perfect. Great. Or, I'm raptured and I'm like, oh, new planet! take my claim, where's my house? I love that. So, there's days I focus a lot on it, think about it, it's deep in my thoughts. There's other days I don't even think about it at all. I don't think about it at all. And I think the right thing is to have a healthy dose of properly understanding that the end is coming. It could be tomorrow, or it could be a thousand years from now. And so what am I going to do until that moment happens? It should be the, idea, the, the knowledge that all are going to suffer in this, the unbelievers on the planet, people are going to suffer in this, should create great motivation in us to share with others. But it also should give us hope. It should give us hope to encourage. It give us hope to help people. Um, I to so over Christmas break well the break my kids' Christmas break my vacation I guess um, we went to Indiana and I love going home um, I love being around family um, sometimes I'm ready to leave a day earlier than we're supposed to leave but I genuinely enjoy my family and there's also some painful parts I remember going to my grandfather my grandmother's house and they had these giant pillows we would sit on and no one would sit on with the grandkids and um, she always gave us and I mean was Savannah Neal, I remember for Christmas she would always give you five or ten dollar gift cards to McDonald's and it started with the coupons. you tore a dollar out when a dollar would get you something like you would tear the dollar out and hold it well now it's like plastic cards and like those thoughts run through my head like and they're both gone they're both home with the Lord and I miss them. I miss them greatly and so there's a pain in that in that knowledge that I, I don't get my kids didn't get to meet my grandfather. And Eli has a sarcasm that rivals my grandfather's. And I would love to have seen the two of them go at it. It would have been epic. But that's never going to happen. Savannah never got to be tossed in the yard by my grandfather to a random person who was there to catch her. And to freak out all of the moms watching. He did that constantly. Constantly picking. Constantly, I just... I adored the guy. He passed when I was 20 years old before Amber and I got married. And I, I, I could go home and i miss him. And I think about how I, I'm not going to... He didn't get to see me become a pastor. He didn't get to see me have children. He didn't get to see me be married. He didn't... But he's going to see all of that in heaven. He's going to see all of that in the second coming. he'll see all of that in the new earth. And I get there's conjecture of how that all looks and we know each other, but I just, just give it to me for today. He's going to see all of them. So I can take the hope from the judgment of God into someone in cancer treatment. Into someone who's in deep pain. Into a nation that's ravaged with war. And I can tell them with great confidence, I don't know if God's going to take this pain from you. I don't know if God is going to help you right here and right now, but I know for a fact that there's a time coming when all of this will be made right again. I can't look at someone in the midst of chemotherapy and say, this is going to heal you, you're going to be terrific, it's going to be amazing. I can't say that. I can hope it, I can pray for it, I can go before the Lord and say, please Lord, make this happen. But I can tell them with great confidence, because I know how the story ends, that Jesus comes as King and He makes all of this right. That you might suffer all 75, 80, 90, 100 years of your life on this planet. That there might be waves and roller coasters of pain and joy and pain and joy. There's a time coming when all the pain is washed away and there's nothing but joy. So I, I find the seven, the four seals we looked at breaking open as places of hope. Now, for us in America, we have to look at the church as a global place. For us in America, it's sometimes hard for us to grasp these things. Because relatively, we've got it pretty good as a nation. Now, we can discuss who should be leading, who shouldn't, and what's going on in laws. We can discuss all that. But right now, where we sit today, on this day, there's no one being drug out of churches for believing in Jesus and killed in the streets. Not in America, but that's happening around the world. Right now, we are—I think—we feel relatively safe. None of you drove into church today with the fear that an IED was going to blow up on the side of the road and take you and your family out. Now, maybe snowstorm, maybe an ice slick, maybe have a collision, but I don't think any of you drove here fearing that. There are people, there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that every time they leave the house. There's a fear that this is coming. So when you read Revelation to them, that this constant stress, constant pain, constant fear is coming to an end, they cheer. Yes! He's coming! All this is going to go away! Yes! There's going to be pain. There's going to be some suffering. But it's going to be worth it. Because there's a limit to it, and I get eternity forever. So you got to put yourselves in the in the shoes of those of our brothers and sisters around the world. I know for us here in the states, it's sometimes hard because we go, "I don't want suffering. I don't want." There's we have brothers and sisters on the opposite side of the planet. They're saying, "Bring it, bring it, please, Jesus, Lord, come." Especially if you're a pre-tribulation raptured premillennialist, you're like, "Yes, do this now." Is that the Lord or my pocket? Right? Like that's, and, and I, again, I theologically, I've been an amillennialist for a while. But in the last two years or so, reading more, listening to some other voices, I've, I've really begun to creep more towards a pre-tribulation, pre because of what I see from the All of that discourse, what I see in Zechariah, I see in Ezekiel, I see in Daniel. um, I'm leaning more that way. But wherever you land, do you see the hope in the midst of all of this destruction? I pray you do. Because that message of hope is what is going to change people's lives for an eternity. That you can look at them and go, I know this stinks. I know this planet's a mess. I know there's stuff going on that's horrific. But there's a day coming when it will all be made right. And we can place our hope in that. And if they ask you, when is it? Don't give them a date. Just say, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I trust the Bible. I trust the. I trust that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross is real. I trust in that. So because I trust in that, and I believe in the Bible, I believe it's true, then this is what's going to happen. I don't have all the details laid out, but I just know that I can have hope in the midst of this pain because He's going to make it right. Can you put your hope in that truth, and if you can, will you be bold enough to share it with people around you? I know I mentioned going home and talking to my mom and you guys prayed for me and been praying for me and it's hard to be a prophet in your own hometown. It really it really is. Um, but we stayed with my mom and so there was a couple nights I had some conversations with her and she, um, Amber gave her a devotional about four months ago and she's been reading it every day and she, no one else was in the living room where we were sitting and she said, you know, I really, I really think that devotional's helped. She's got lots of medical issues. She, for a long time, um, she would say, I don't know why God hates me because He keeps making me have these illnesses. And I would always push back, you know, God doesn't hate you. It's not how it works. And you can't blame Him for everything. I mean, you kind of, you know, ate a good diet of fried food and chocolate-covered peanuts and smoked cigarettes since you were 15. I mean, some of those are a little bit of your influence, too. He doesn't hate you. God doesn't hate us. And so I, I broke through all of that over the last eight or nine years. She doesn't really believe that anymore. But um, she still longs for a time when things aren't so hard. And being with the Lord in a devotion, in the word every day, has given her hope. It's given her some peace. So she asks, what are you studying? Or like, what are you teaching? What are you preaching through? Sometimes she gets online and listens, but I'm her son. So, you know, my, vo- my voice isn't always me. It probably annoys her even more. And as to read Revelation, she goes, oh, I bet that's fun. I go, it is, Mom. It really is. I know that because she, she knows all the stuff and the pain and all She gets it. But, I'm, but, Mom, there's hope in that. That even in your struggles with diabetes and heart disease and the things that you are fighting through and you find that really wear you down, there's going to come a day when you have a perfect body. That so you are in the presence of the King. And all of this is going to go away. She smiled and said, yeah, I'd like that. I mean, we don't have like crazy, deep conversations, but it was really encouraging to me to be able to even, as someone is picking on Revelation, to even try to speak some hope into that, but not not tell them to look for the signs everywhere. Just say, it's coming. And there's hope in it. There's hope in it. So as we close, do you see the hope even in the trial? Do you see the hope even in the pain? Because I think that translates directly into our lives here. No matter where he's coming back, when he comes, what's happening, do you see the hope even in the midst of your trials? And that could be a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month kind of thing. That if we all walked around here every day going, God is good every day. As we're hemorrhaging blood from the car wreck or we're like, come on, like, be honest, be real. But can you, in the midst of all that goes on, cling to the fact that he's good and help that hope to be known to others? I pray you can. I pray you can.